Hello everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby with Consultant 360. Today I'm speaking with the authors of an article titled Diagnosis and Management of Growth Hormone Deficiency in Adults, which was published on Consultant 360 recently and will appear in the June issue of Consultant. Dr. Julie Silverstein is an Associate Professor of Medicine and Neurological Surgery and Medical Director of the Pituitary Center at Washington University in St. Louis. Dr. Alexandra Martirosian is a second-year fellow in the Endocrinology Department at Washington University in St. Louis. Let's listen in as they answer my questions. Growth hormone deficiency is a clinical syndrome caused by decreased production of or decreased tissue responsiveness to growth hormone. What else should primary care providers know about GHD? Sure. Uh, so growth hormone is one of several hormones that are secreted by the pituitary gland, uh, anterior pituitary. Um, and the anterior pituitary, it's a little gland in our brains, um, kind of a few inches behind the eyes. And it regulates other hormones that are involved, including thyroid, cortisol production, um, estrogen production in women, testosterone production in men, um, and then, of course, growth hormone. Um, and in children, growth hormone is primarily responsible for growth like in height bone elongation and muscle production. Um, in adults, it's more anabolic effects. So maintaining muscle mass and bone density. Growth hormone deficiency is very sort of insidious in our presentation. Because like in children, for example, you know, if they have a growth hormone deficiency, they just don't get tall. And then that's usually a pretty obvious observation. But in adults, findings are usually more subtle. And it could be things like fatigue, weight gain, decreased quality of life, uh, increase in fat mass, decreased muscle mass. And there's just a lot of clinical things out there that can present in a similar way. And so it's something that it just kind of takes sort of a higher index of suspicion to diagnose. The one thing I'll just add is that generally you probably don't want to just start testing people for growth hormone deficiency, you know, just because of the nonspecific nature and how rare it is. But the type of patient that you want to be thinking about is someone who has pituitary disease, either pituitary tumor or they've had surgery or radiation or they've had some kind of other trauma to the pituitary gland. Diagnosis of GHD is confirmed by laboratory testing, as you alluded to, in the setting of multi, uh, multiple uh, pituitary hormone deficiencies and organic pituitary disease. Uh, what is the role of the primary care provider in that diagnosis process? And at what point should a primary care provider refer patients to an endocrinologist? The role of the primary care provider is to know when to suspect it. Um, so kind of like what Dr. Silverstein mentioned earlier, it's, it's clinical history is so important to diagnose this. So if they've had some kind of a pituitary tumor uh, that was treated with maybe with surgery or radiation or um, if they've any or traumatic brain injury, and then that places them at risk of other hormone deficiencies and not just growth hormones. So I think it's important maybe the primary care providers to uh, start a, do a hormonal evaluation so they can check other things like thyroid and uh, cortisol production and testosterone or estrogen levels in, in suspected patients. Because that can be very helpful. It's even just getting the hormonal workup started. If there's any like um, imaging of the brain that needs to be done, 
if workup is you know abnormal, then it'd be a good time to refer to an endocrinologist. Um, or, I mean, it, a lot of it depends on the comfort level of the primary care provider. If they have the strong enough suspicion for a disorder in the pituitary hormones and growth hormone, then they could, it would also be reasonable to refer to an endocrinologist early on. Um, okay. So then treatment for GHD might be lifelong. Uh, what is the gold standard of treatment for adult onset GHD? And can primary care providers manage these patients long-term? Sure. So the gold standard uh, of treatment for growth hormone deficiency is just growth hormone replacement, or it's recombinant growth hormone. And for years, it's always just been a daily injection under the skin. But now there's uh, newer drugs in development that maybe just once weekly growth hormone injections. I mean, as far as management, a primary care provider feels comfortable prescribing thing and they know, you know, what to look for, like what are the diagnostic criteria and then what are the complications you need to be aware of with treatment, then that's fine. But from a more practical standpoint, is a lot of times insurance companies want to see that it's being prescribed by an endocrinologist. So sometimes that ultimately makes the, the final decision. But I would say at least in current practice, I would say the majority of uh, growth hormone prescriptions are coming from endocrinologists. And I just add, you know, I think if probably this would be something that would be started by an endocrinologist, but depending on access to care for the patient, you know, it may be that it would be more convenient for the patient if the primary care doctor took over management of it, possibly while maintaining communication with an endocrinologist. But as Dr. Matarosian has mentioned, prescribing growth hormone can often comes along with a lot of paperwork to get approval. And often there's questions about who's prescribing it. So that may be a barrier, as she mentioned. So after therapy is initiated, patients should follow up within one to two month intervals at first, which can later be spaced out to six to 12 month intervals once a stable dose has been reached. What is the role of the primary care provider in the long-term management of patients with adult onset GHD? I think this is, can be a difficult thing to monitor in terms of, you know, figuring out if someone's getting benefit from it. Certainly we monitor IGF-1 levels. So at first, every one to two months as you're increasing the dose, and really what you're trying to do is you want to avoid side effects. And of course you want to avoid, you know, underdosing and, and symptoms of growth hormone deficiency. So you're aiming for an IGF-1 really within the normal range Data does not support, you know, keeping people at a higher level. The other things, you know, you want to assess. So you want to assess clinical improvement in terms of symptoms. So the objective measures of that could be using quality of life questionnaires, you know, every six months to a year. Other things that should be assessed are glucose, fasting glucose, because as I said, growth hormone replacing can, can transiently increase glucose. There are tools to measure waist circumference and waist to hip ratio to, to, to see objective evidence of benefit, as well as, you know, you should measure things like the fasting lipid profile. So I think that's where the, you know, the primary care doctor could have a role in some of the routine testing that you would do anyway, you would want to do for these patients, such as the fasting glucose and the A1C. So again, I think that could be something done in coordination with an endocrinologist I think a lot of primary care doctors and even endocrinologists don't have the, the tools to, to measure lean 
hip ratio, waist circumference readily available necessarily in their clinic. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, I think it's important to reassess periodically whether or not the patient is having benefit from the growth hormone replacement. Again, this could be done with primary care or endocrinology. You know, so again, looking at those parameters that I discussed, but also just, you know, trying to assess if a patient is having symptomatic improvement, because if there's really no symptomatic improvement or no other objective signs of improvement after one to two years, it's reasonable to, to stop giving the growth hormone. But that should be a, a joint discussion with the patient. Um, okay, so then recumbent human growth hormone has a high financial cost and the possibility of adverse effects. What are your tips for healthcare providers managing these patients long-term who may not be adherent to the medication? First, to address the side effects. And again, I think it's important to understand that the side effects are dose dependent. So if someone develops side effects and you decrease the dose or you stop growth hormone, those should go away. But the things that we need to look out for are joint and muscle pain, soft tissue swelling, paresthesias, carpal tunnel syndrome, development of sleep apnea, potentially making blood pressure worse, insomnia, and as I mentioned, hyperglycemia. I mean, if you give someone too much growth hormone, you know, you could have features of acromegaly, but that's pretty rare. So it's important, I think, to, to assess those things as you're treating patients. And in terms of adherence, I think that's really more of an issue in the pediatric population because, you know, the patients need the growth hormone to, to grow um, as they should. In adults, and even in pediatrics, it's sometimes it's not always dosed every single day of the week, and kids are sometimes given breaks. In adults, you know, it's reasonable to just to skip a day here and there if the patient's having side effects or if it's just too hard to get fitted into the busy schedule. This is really where the, the once a week formulations that I do think will be coming out and will be available are gonna be helpful, even potentially a once a month formulation. The other thing I would say for following these patients and something for the primary care doctor is, there's a kind of a debate about whether or not growth hormone replacement increases malignancy risk because it's growth hormone, it stimulates growth of cells. Well, we have data in patients with hypopituitarism where there's no increased risk of cancer or mortality in those patients, but the growth hormone replacement is contraindicated with someone with an active malignancy. So that's somewhere where the primary care doctor would have to be aware of that. And then I think kind of one more thing I wanted to add too, is that there's a potential for abuse in society because I think some people you know, may view it like maybe in sports, like for athletic and performance enhancement, or maybe some people might view it as a way to prevent the aging process, but really growth hormone should never be prescribed for either of those things. It should really only be prescribed for documented growth hormone deficiency, or it's also been approved for um, HIV lipodystrophy. So. so I appreciate your time. Thank you again so much for answering my question. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having okay. us.